Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi, welcome to Opera Happy Hour. My name is Jeremy Frank. I am the Associate Chorus Master at LA Opera, and as always, I'm thrilled to have you along with me. Last episode, we spent some time crashing operatic weddings to help make up for a quintessential summer tradition that we had to alter or cancel because of COVID-19. We'll continue along that line, and we'll explore another tradition that we had to miss out on, namely the family reunion. I've searched through the repertoire and chosen four famous operatic family reunions. And as was the case with operatic weddings, these depictions of reconnections between family members come with a ton more drama than I hope you experience in your own family's relationships. Just like last time, though, that makes for a great recipe for beautiful music and fantastic entertainment. Uh, Again, this is an episode where we have a pretty straightforward theme. And uh, because of that, I wanted to do one more really straightforward drink pairing. Um, And since it's a a theme about family relationships, I wanted to choose this pink Moscato, uh, which is actually one of my mom's favorite kinds of wine. Uh, So let me make a quick toast to my family and to yours and to being able to reconnect again soon in person. Cheers. If you've ever seen the 1984 Academy Award-winning movie Amadeus, you know that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had a complex relationship with his father. Leopold, the elder Mozart, supported his young son's genius, of course, and continued an uninterrupted stream of communication throughout his life via letters. But as young Wolfgang grew up and moved out to establish his own independent life, there were ups and downs between the two men. Despite this movie's depiction of them as an impossible-to-please father and an irresponsible but genius son, the reality of their bond was more nuanced than that, and represented a relatively normal tension that many fathers and sons experience. Nonetheless, In the hands of a genius opera composer, this tension became the fuel for him to delve into the dynamics of the relationships between family members over and over throughout his operas. Three of the four musical excerpts we'll explore come from Mozart's depictions of family. Whether they are poignant, comedic, or downright scary, Mozart and his music probe the ties that bind in a way that few other opera composers have ever achieved. The first family that we'll visit comes from Mozart's opera Idomeneo, which was written in 1780 when Mozart was only 24 years old, and is often considered the first of Mozart's mature operas. A perfect example of opera seria, or serious opera, the story of Idomeneo comes from the blurred lines of ancient history and mythology. We find ourselves around the year 1200 BCE during the Trojan War. 
Idomeneo, the king of Crete, has been away from his homeland for many years, fighting wars and laying siege to the city of Troy. Before he embarks on what is meant to be a victorious return to Crete, he sends several Trojan captives ahead of him, including the princess Elia. And before her boat arrives safely at shore, it is shipwrecked and Elia is saved by Idamante, who happens to be Idomeneo's own son. These two youngsters fall in love, but Elia is tormented by the fact that she loves the son of the king who has destroyed her homeland. Idamante begs Elia to accept him as a suitor of his own accord, without holding him accountable for his father's actions. Now, toward the end of Act 1, Idomeneo sets out to return to Crete, when his ship is also shipwrecked. Just as all hope seems lost, Idomeneo desperately barters with the god of the sea, Neptune, saying that if his life is spared, he will sacrifice the first living being he meets when he comes safely to shore. Imagine Idomeneo's horror when the first person he meets on shore is his own son, Idamante. Because Idomeneo has been away for so long, and possibly because he hasn't gotten all of the seaweed out of his hair yet, his son doesn't actually recognize his father at first. Finally, Idomeneo reveals who he is, telling Idamante, I am your father. Idamante is overjoyed to be reconnected, but Idomeneo immediately and mysteriously says that he must leave forever and that Idamante should never seek him out again. Of course, he doesn't and really can't reveal the pact that he made with Neptune, which changes Idamante's joy to deep sorrow. During the last show, I introduced you to a musical fabric called Seco Recitativo, or Dry Recit, but tonight we'll go one step further and explore Recitativo Accompagnato, or Accompanied Recit. Whereas Seco Recit is accompanied with music improvised on a harpsichord, all of the strings of the orchestra play during an accompanied recit. As you can imagine, this use of the orchestra drastically expands the musical palette that can be produced. While the main function of Seco Recit was to advance plot, composers like Mozart reserve accompanied recit for moments of high drama that start to reveal emotion as well as advance the story. This in-between musical fabric also helps to smooth the transition between recitative and aria. In many ways, this kind of musical fabric is a perfect fabric for the kind of drama that we see between Idomeneo and Idamante. And uh, let me give you a little taste of what it sounds like now. Most unpitying gods, are you also mourning my father's destiny? But I am your father, my father. What am I hearing? Oh, what a miracle. Allow me, my dear beloved father, to embrace you. I thought you'd drown, but no, why are you angry? Why do you pull away? 
But why? Where are you going? Do not follow me. I forbid it. It would have been better for you if you had never seen me again. Stay back. Stay back. Never seek me again. Oh, what horror I feel. My senses fail me. I've barely seen him and recognized him, and he tells me that we cannot ever reunite. Oh, misery, what did I do? How could he tell me that we can never see each other from now on? If I can't follow him, what harsh fate? Maybe a crueler future awaits me. Mozart was as gifted of a comedian as he was a dramatist, and he knew how to paint a light-hearted family reunion just as well as a dramatic one. To show you what I mean, let's investigate one of the truly great comedic moments of 18th century opera, whose humor still holds up today, courtesy of the opera Le Nozze di Figaro, or The Marriage of Figaro. You may remember that The Marriage of Figaro is actually the second installment in a trilogy of plays by the French playwright Beaumarchais. The first of those plays is The Barber of Seville, which we started exploring during the last episode. In fact, the wedding scene between the Count Almaviva and Countess Rosina introduced us to no fewer than five of the characters we find in The Marriage of Figaro. Several years have passed in these characters' lives, and as we start this opera, uh, we find ourselves on Figaro's wedding day as he waits to marry his bride, Susanna. Things between the Count and the Countess Almaviva have gone stale, and the Count's eye has started to wander, landing on Figaro's own bride, Susanna. In fact, the Count goes so far as to try to prevent Figaro from marrying her so that she can still be available to become his mistress. The Count sneakily adopts a legal argument to indefinitely postpone Figaro's wedding. Figaro owes a large sum of money to an older noblewoman, Marcellina, and the Count and Dr. Bartolo, the bumbling bad guy from the Barber of Seville, say Figaro has to either repay her, which he's too poor to be able to do, or he has to marry her, and not Susanna. In a last-ditch attempt to avoid marrying Marcellina, Figaro claims to be of noble birth, meaning that he would need the permission of his parents to get married. Of course, no one believes him at first, but he says that he was a foundling stolen by robbers who abducted him from near a castle. Baby Figaro was in a basket with gold, gems, and embroidered clothes, which are proof, obviously, of his noble birth. Moreover, he has a birthmark on his right arm. 
Suddenly, Marcellina is extremely excited and correctly guesses that Figaro's birthmark is in the shape of a spatula because, as it turns out, she herself is Figaro's long-lost mother. And what's more, and to everyone's great surprise, Dr. Bartolo is his dad. Instantly, a joyous reunion of the happy family ensues. Of course, this wedding between Figaro and his own mom can't go forward as planned, but unfortunately, Susanna wasn't present at all of these revelations because she had been busily trying to rustle up money to buy Figaro's freedom. When she finally arrives on the scene, she mistakes the happy reunion for a wedding reception between Figaro and Marcellina. Feeling betrayed, she slaps Figaro across the face, but he and his mom calmly explain their newfound familial relationship. Everyone is delighted, except for the Count, of course, whose plot is destroyed. All of this hilarious and sweet scene is depicted in a sextet with Figaro, Susanna, Marcellina, Bartolo, the Count, and his lawyer, Don Curzio. As usual, I've made an English translation so that you can follow the part, but rather than sing all six parts simultaneously, as I've done on the last couple episodes, I'll jump around from character to character so that you can understand the story as it unfolds. Come embrace me, my dear youngster. I'm your mother, my dear son. And then you must be my father. Come and hug me just the same. How could I deny my offspring? Let us never part again. That's his father, I'm astonished. She's his mother, I'm astounded. Now this wedding can't go on. My dear son, my dear son, beloved parents. Oh, my son, oh, my son, beloved parents. Oh, what joy! She's already with this woman. Oh, my God, he's such a jerk. I've been betrayed. Take that traitor. No, I beg you. Take that traitor. No, I beg you. Listen, my dearest. Be calm now. Listen. Listen to this smack. Now calm all your anger, my lovely new daughter, and come greet your husband's father too. And come greet your husband's father too. His mother, his mother, and father, and father, his mother, his mother, and father, and father, his mother, and father, your mother. And he is my father, I tell you myself. And now all is well, my mother. And now all is well, my father. And now all is well. Next, I thought we would check out one of opera's most famous and chilling mother-daughter relationships, as depicted in one of Mozart's final operas, The Magic Flute. Written in 1791 and premiered just two months before Mozart's death. 
The Magic Flute is an unusual opera for several reasons, and as you'll soon hear, the music Mozart writes in the German language is very different from the musical vocabulary he uses in his Italian operas. Both Mozart and his librettist Emanuel Schikaneder were Freemasons, just like many of the founding fathers of the United States. And as the two of them created the Magic Flute, they strove to depict the strongly humanist and, for the time, progressive ideals of this organization, even going so far as to portray some of the secret rites of the Masons. They set the plot in ancient Egypt, where Freemasonry believed uh, that the rites had come from originally, and because of that, there are many references to the gods Isis and Osiris in this opera. Mozart's music covers a tremendous scope, uh, all the way from simple folk melodies to profoundly noble hymns to fiery arias of vengeance, as you're about to hear. Now, when the opera starts, we meet a young hero named Tamino, who is being chased by a terrifying and very hungry dragon. At the very last minute, he's saved by three mysterious ladies, and when he is recovered, these ladies show him the portrait of a beautiful young woman named Pamina, who will eventually become his bride. Pamina is the daughter of the Queen of the Night. At first, the Queen doesn't seem so bad. I mean, she just had her ladies save Tamino after all. But over the course of the opera, we come to realize that she is, in fact, a fiery, ruthless, vengeance-seeking woman who wants to assassinate the highest priest of the Freemasons, a guy whose name is Zarastro. After Tamino realizes that Zarastro is actually the embodiment of wisdom, truth, and justice, and not an evil kidnapper, as the queen would have him believe, he is no longer willing to carry out her demands. Having lost her control over Tamino, the queen realizes that she must manipulate her daughter into getting the job done. In a terrifying aria, she gives Pamina a dagger and charges her to murder Sarastro or no longer call herself the daughter of the Queen of the Night. As I play the first segment of this aria, you will certainly recognize the tune. In fact, this aria is extra famous because Mozart writes some of the highest notes that the soprano voice can sing, a high F. There are a total of four of them in this aria, and because of that, watching the magic flute can kind of become a spectator sport. I also find this dramatic moment highly interesting because it's a really good example of a terrible family reunion. Most moms do not incite their child to murder, and especially not as a condition of maintaining their relationship. As I sing this aria, I'll be singing it exactly two octaves lower than the actual written pitch. But don't be fooled. Even there, these Fs are really high for me, particularly because I'm a pianist. So if you know this piece well, you'll also notice that I'm only singing the first part of the aria, which I'll conclude right after hitting those famous high Fs. Uh, that's because although there's plenty of challenging aria still ahead, the audience almost always spontaneously applauds after the high notes. I hope my singing will cause the same reaction from you. Wish me luck! Der 
Hölle Rache kocht in meinem Herzen. Tod und Verzweiflung, Tod und Verzweiflung flammet um mich her. Fühlt nicht durch dich, Sarasro, Tode, Schmerzen, Sarasro, Tode, Schmerzen. So bist du meine Tochter nimme mehr. So bist du nicht meine Tochter nimme mehr. Meine Tochter so bist du meine Tochter The final family reunion we'll be visiting tonight comes not from Mozart, but from Giacomo Puccini's one-act opera, Johnny Schicchi, which is Puccini's final complete work and his only comedy. When we investigated this piece a few episodes ago, we mentioned that Johnny Schicchi, the title character, is immortalized in Dante's Inferno, but Johnny was actually a real historical man too, and the reason Dante included him in his work was because he, quote, counterfeited the shape of another for his own ends. If that mysterious turn of phrase doesn't immediately make light bulbs light up over your head, check out the central plot of the opera, which will explain it. When the curtain rises, the first thing that we see is the agonized death gasp of Buozo Donati. He is, or rather was, a very rich and terminally sick patriarch of a huge extended Italian family in Florence in 1299. His whole family is at the deathbed, seeming to mourn. In fact, they're just there for appearances. If there are any real tears at all, it's only because the family has heard rumors that Buozo has disinherited the entire family and given his money over to a monastery in the countryside. They slowly realize that if the will has already gotten into the hands of lawyers, there's nothing they can do. But if the will is still somewhere on the premises, they might have a fighting chance to save their inheritance. They reluctantly agree to entrust their collective fates to Gianni Schicchi, who comes up with an ingenious plan. He orders the family to blow out the candles that were burning during the vigil and tells them to send for a notary and two witnesses. He explains that he'll put on the deceased Buozo's night shirt, and in the dark room, he'll imitate Buozo's voice so that he, Johnny, can rewrite the will to the family's benefit. He stresses to the Donati clan that this is a serious crime that they're embarking on, and if any of them blows their cover, they'll all be punished by having their right hands amputated and by being exiled from Florence forever. Just before the notary arrives, 
Each family member individually sneaks over to Skiki to offer him a bribe so he'll give each of them a coveted piece of property from Buozo's extensive holdings. After everybody makes claims to one property, they all agree to let Skiki decide in the moment who gets the three biggest ticket items, which are the mansion that they're in right now in Florence, some sawmills in Signa, and a mule which is apparently the fanciest mule in all of Tuscany. Skiki slips into place and starts dictating the new will to the notary, who dutifully translates it into Latin, the language of all legal documents. One by one, Skiki makes good on the family's bribes, and they piously thank him. Finally, it's time to bequeath the three most coveted items, and to the family's shock and horror, Skiki gives each of those three things to himself. The family starts to threaten Skiki, saying they'll reveal him as an imposter, but that he sneakily reminds them of the punishment that they would face, and they all fall into line. Now, in many ways, Johnny Skiki is an opera that feels as contemporary as any ensemble cast sitcom from the 21st century. So that you can understand all the jokes in the piece, I've again made an English translation of this excerpt, and as always, I'll be jumping around from character to character as I sing the story of the scene. At the end of this particular musical excerpt, you'll hear a little winking, tongue-in-cheek giggle from the orchestra part, which represents Skiki chuckling to himself. From the Donati's perspective, this isn't a very happy family reunion at all, but I think you'll agree with me that it's a very funny one and that there's nothing that will bring a family together like shared misery. Take a listen and see for yourself. As for the money in cash, I leave it to my family in equal portions. Oh, uncle, thank you. Thank you, my cousin. I give Simon my houses in Fucecchio and for Zita the farms of Filigne, for Beto the fields of Prato, for Nella and Gerardo Casa Empoli, and for Cesca and Marco, the land in Empoli. Now it's time for the mule and the house and the mills. I leave the mule, for which I spent over three hundred florins, which everyone knows is the strongest mule in Tuscany, to my dear, devoted friend, Johnny Skiki. What's that? He can't. I swear he's mad. Ulam relinquit eius amico devoto Johnny Skiki. Wait! Why on earth would a man like Johnny Skiki want a mule? Just a moment, Simone, I alone know the needs of Johnny Skiki. <sighs> the scoundrel! I leave the 
this house in Florence to my dear devoted confidant, Chaliskiki. homeland I must salute you do not disturb him we must respect his final wish Mr. Amancio I know that they object but I have clearly chosen my intentions if they complain I'll sing farewell to Florence and the mills in Signa, and the mills in Signa, the mills in Signa, farewell dear Florence, I leave my dearest farewell beloved city, devoted confidant Johnny Skiki, I must salute you with my amputated stump, la 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 la, that is all. Would you give twenty florins to each witness? And fifty to the lawyer? Mr. Pozo, thank you. No goodbyes now. Have courage, have courage. Let's be strong. It's hard to believe that that brings us to the end of another episode already. I hope you are feeling inspired to call your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your grandparents, whoever, and thank them for not double-crossing you out of their will. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, I hope you stay happy and healthy. I can't wait to see you again. And cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.